much return to normal a little with the AFL back up and running. What have we got this week, Stree? So this week's show, we'll look back at round two of the AFL. We'll talk tennis as the US Open dates have been announced. And we'll discuss 2020 and the dreaded asterisk season. Let's get cracking. We are the Sportplex. So quick news roundup, Shuey, before we get into the meat and potatoes today. Uh, there's some breaking NBL news as we record. Brian Colangelo uh, has bought an ownership stake in what was formerly the Illawarra Hawks, now just known as the Hawks. He'll assist in governance and strategy. He resigned from the NBA in somewhat sketchy circumstances after it was revealed his wife had operated multiple Twitter accounts that posted private information and opinions on the organization's rivals, but also their own players as well. What do we think about this one? Was he married to Kevin Durant? But no, it's, um, look, it's interesting. I mean, certainly the one thing that the, the NBL needs right now is, uh, is a money injection. So, you know, kind of take the good with the bad on that one. It's, um, yeah, it's certainly, it'll be great to, to have a team like Illawarra, who I, I believe are the only team left from the, uh, from the start of the NBL to, uh, you know, sort of cement them in the, in the league for a little bit that longer. That is correct. Yep, they're the only foundation team still around and, and the uh, rumours of their demise were definitely premature. But unfortunately, now Cairns are rumoured to be in a bit of trouble. We'll come back to that one maybe in later weeks once we know more. I, this, this one's interesting. Brian Colangelo, obviously the Colangelo family are almost royalty in basketball circles in the States, uh, with his dad, Jerry, being an architect of gold medals and pretty good Phoenix Suns teams and, and uh, certainly, I guess, probably a better rep than his son, Brian. Uh, I mean, Brian's done some good things in his own right. He did take over the 76ers um, after their, you know, successive seasons of tanking. And he kind of ripped the rewards of it because that's when they started to be uh, more of a <laughs> respectable team. But he left in, in interesting circumstances. So I think, I think, like you say, I think the important thing is that money's heading into the league and there was a rumour at one stage that Lamelo Ball would be buying in, but that, that turned out to be untrue. So it's great that the Hawks are still alive and let's hope uh, as more news comes to hand with Cairns, they stay alive too. Yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, the, the Cairns one, as I said, we don't really know too much about at this stage, but um, we, we did uh, attend high school, funnily enough, with one of the former Cairns Taipans players, and there's a lot of stuff going through the social media platforms at the moment about, uh, about concerns surrounding, you know, things to do with the stadium and, and surrounding areas. So, it, it, yeah, definitely a watch this space. It'd be super, super disappointing because you could argue that if they return their entire roster from last season, you could argue that they're actually championship favourites. Oh, they would be, definitely. After the way they played last season, um, you know, look, I'll happily put my hand up and say that I, I wasn't sure that they would make the playoffs at all. It's, um, you know, they, they really did an amazing job of recruiting. Obviously, their, um, you know, their, their two uh, imports coming in with, with Oliver and Machado were just first-rate players. And, and, you know, I think I think realistically they could have both been all NBL first-team players. Um, so, yeah, you're right. They probably would be... I guess almost favourites, if uh, depending obviously on what happens with some of the other teams, but um, yeah, they certainly look would look very good. And I think I think a lot of t- a lot of people didn't necessarily have them in the playoffs. That's the problem with the NBL with the import turnover. It's always so hard to know which teams will be good and which one. And of course, they can't return their entire roster because we're only down to two imports next season. But if Machado and Oliver are their imports, then uh, watch out because yeah. they were exceptional in the playoffs and they gave us a real. 
Well, to be honest, they gave us more of a challenge than the Kings did in the grand final. True, true. I suppose then the next question is what happens with someone like a DJ Noble, but you know that's a that's a question for you know another show, I guess. So. I guess we should uh, move on to, to Cricket Australia now. So um, I suppose one of the interesting stories coming out of out of today was the slashing of $40 million worth of salaries, uh, including batting coach Graham Hick, who was unfortunately uh, relieved of his duties, um, which gives Andrew McDonald a, uh, sl- a slightly bigger role. He's now having to look after, after that role as well. Um, they also lost team physiotherapist Kevin Sims. So um, a, a huge amount of people lost, but, you know, I guess a money saving and a necessary... Uh, necessary action but it's you know it's it's been a bit of a a bit of a horror week I guess with Kevin Roberts standing down earlier in the week and now this it it baffles the mind that Cricket Australia could be I I would have thought that Cricket Australia would have been probably the most financially sound of any sporting bodies in this country Uh, Usman Khawaja came out last week uh, saying that he thought they'd mismanaged money it certainly looks that way I don't know how they could possibly be in such dire straits financially. It's a, it's a real worry. But uh, I guess the only solace is that probably all nations will be facing similar problems, So, uh, except maybe India. Very true. In NRL news, a Sydney high school student has agreed to sign the richest contract ever offered to a teenager. Joseph Suali, apologies for pronunciation, will sign a multi-year $1.7 million deal with the South Sydney Rabbitohs that, of course, Russell Crowe's team. Uh, he cannot play until his 18th birthday, which is mi- uh, August 1st next year. But the Bunnies plan to play him straight away. And why wouldn't they when they've invested that much money? Yeah, this is this is an absolutely fascinating story to, to see. And, I mean, again, for us being massive NBA fans, you know, we've seen a lot of stories over the years about guys coming straight out of high school and, there's always the challenges around the, the physicality of the of the men's game, and, and I guess you know taking that next step up. But um, for all accounts, this kid is worth every cent and more. So it's you know this is going to be an interesting one. And, and you know for us, you know we, we mentioned it last week. We're not massive fans of rugby, but um, you know this will certainly be one to to keep an eye on it to to see you know just how how good this kid really is and and whether he actually is worth the money. It's certainly eye-opening in this financial climate after we've just talked about Cricket Australia in trouble for them to be forking out all this money. I mean, South Sydney were in, uh, they nearly folded uh, not so long ago. So this is quite interesting. It'll be very, uh, very interesting to see how he goes. Hopefully the burden of expectation isn't too high. Well, I mean, you'd have to hope that they they would sort of ease him into it. But uh, yeah, I guess we we will soon see. And I suppose we'll finish off the wrap-up with, with something a little bit funny. Um, so Michael Jordan, obviously the, the greatest player of all time, uh, caught a 200-kilogram marlin in a fishing contest in Moorhead City in North Carolina. Um, Jordan was competing in, in a, I believe it's a week-long tournament um, from his boat Catch-23, which I think is an absolutely hilarious name for a boat. I think he's done very well there. Um, interestingly enough, though, he's not even in the top three. So... Um, while this this tournament has a I think a four point eight million dollar purse, Jordan's actually not even in a position with that massive catch to uh, to take home any money. Um, I think the leader was about two hundred and twenty four or two hundred and twenty eight kilos. It's a just stupidly oh. big fish. So so yeah, he's still a long way off, but um, still a very very impressive catch for you know for, for someone who I, I guess isn't a professional fisherman by by any stretch. Let's just hope that uh, he doesn't put it on his pizza and get food poisoning. Well played. Well, let's talk about the biggest news 
it's something that most of this country has been waiting for for quite some time. And it ended up coming earlier than many of us expected. At one stage, they were talking mid to late July. But no, round two, it finally kicked off on Thursday, June 11. And perhaps fittingly, and perhaps summing up 2020, although it's only halfway through, it ended in a draw. But the biggest story, of course, Stewie, is the crowd noise. What do we reckon about the artificial crowd noise? Do you know what? I was very, very impressed, actually. <laughs> and I know you're laughing because, you, you know, we, we weren't particularly, well, I certainly wasn't particularly excited all of a few weeks ago. But no, look, full credit to them. I think they, they did a great job of, of, I guess they had somebody manually changing the volume and, and things like that. I mean, it, yeah, missing the, you know, the, the cries of ball here and there. But uh, beyond that, certainly, um, I, I was very, very pleasantly surprised. I was being a bit cheeky there because it was probably the loudest crowd reaction, albeit uh, a fake crowd, that there's ever been from a draw. Because normally after a draw, you can hear a pin drop or you can hear boos. But the cheers went up when it was 36 all. And look, for a low-scoring game, it was actually quite entertaining. It almost, it almost had a bit of a finals atmosphere to it. Obviously, two of the better teams, uh, two of the best teams in the competition. I thought I was on a winner when I picked Collingwood. I was pretty, pretty happy with that on my tips. But then obviously... Uh, Bolton got a late uh, free kick in the third quarter that was a little bit dubious. And then there was another dubious decision that for, for mine, for all money, was definitely behind. And the goal umpire called it as such. But then they went up to the third umpire and the third umpire said it was a goal. And that ended up pretty much deciding the game. And thus the draw. Yeah, it was a, a really, really interesting struggle. And it's funny you say that that had that finals intensity. It kind of takes me back a little bit to the uh, to the Swans and Eagles match in, in the in the grand final in 2005 when, uh, you know, it was a, a very low scoring and defensive grand final. And it did kind of have a bit of that intensity to it. Um, very much a tale of two halves this game, um, as quite a few of the games this round actually sort of seemed to have where, you know, Collingwood looked like they were absolute world beaters for certainly a, a good chunk of, of the first half. Um, and then obviously came, you know, back, back to reality a little bit in the, uh, in the second half. I mean, they've, they've kicked three behinds in the second half, which is, you know, almost unheard of in, in today's game. Um, so, yeah, really, as I say, a real fascinating sort of, uh, I guess, you know, arm wrestle. I know a lot of people in the in the media weren't particularly happy with the quality, saying that it was it was boring and it wasn't what people had been waiting for. But you know, I think maybe part of the purist in me, and you know, I think you're you're a purist as well, Nathan. I think we probably appreciated that a little bit more than than some others would have. I think it was almost like round one, wasn't it? And you know, there's going to be skill errors. There's going to whenever you come back from a break, um, you know, it wasn't quite. And the whole thing is unique. It wasn't a preseason. I think for a first game back, I was, I was, I was fixated. I enjoyed it. Um, and for the most part, I think, and this goes across the whole weekend, for the most part, the artificial crowd was okay. But I think <laughs> the volume was wrong at times. So they clearly didn't care whose home ground it was. So there was kind of loud cheers no matter which team kicked a goal. Uh, which obviously wouldn't happen depending on which ground it was and who was at home. I, I personally just keep the buzz, just have the buzz throughout the whole game. I think the buzz of the crowd was good. I think it's when they put it up and down is when it kind of didn't quite work. And they, yeah, but I think that will improve as the weeks go on. 
Oh, definitely. And yeah, I mean, you're right about the the skill errors. I mean, you could see, you know, and again, not just in this game, but but right across the round. I don't think I've ever seen as many shanks on players kicking for goal. You know, putting things out of bounds on the full, or uh, you know, I saw a countless countless attempts on goal be dragged across the across the face and you know not even register a score so um i think it'll maybe take a couple of weeks until we get back up to you know up to the standard but yeah i mean when you have that sort of a layoff you kind of expect that speaking of up to standard geelong absolutely were on their home ground uh very handily defeating the hawks 108 to 47 i thought this would potentially had it could have been the game of the round but uh the hawks Hung about in the first half, and then the Cats absolutely blew the game open in the second half, and thus the win over 50 points. Um, perhaps the biggest story out of this one was the sling tackle. Yeah, look, I mean, I, again, you know, this was a, you know, just to quickly go back a step, another one of those tale of two halves games, you know, uh, Hawthorne six points down at, at, at half time, and then, you know, they get outscored sort of 10 goals to one in the second half and, and Geelong very much showed their class in, you know, in the way that they took them apart. Um, very, you know, very, very skillful around the ground and that, uh, that home field advantage of Goomba, even without the, the normal crowds was, uh, was certainly something that, that was sort of very clear to see. I mean, even, you know, looking at a lot of the stats, you know, plus 14 inside fifties and extra 18 clearances, uh, 78 to 49 in the marks they, they dominated pretty much all of the all of the major counting stats and but yes you're right what we will all, all be talking about i guess is the uh, is the sling tackle from from mr burgle in on dangerfield it was it's still you know it blows my mind that he managed to avoid you know getting any sort of suspension for that um, well it was a raw technicality that that uh meant that he he didn't get suspended and and Credit to the AFL, they've actually changed the rules, which is not something that they've traditionally done. They've always waited to the end of the season to fix things. But the technicality was he only had him with one arm rather than both arms. Um, they could have gone a step further and, and still given him a week or two, I think. He probably deserved at least one, I think. I think one. Yeah, I think one, one was fair. But the good, the good thing to come out of that is that at least it's changed for the rest of the season. If they're serious about protecting the head, then they made the absolute right call to change the rules. So I think common sense prevailed. Well, it's, it's one of these things that I've, I've kind of had an issue with when it comes to the MRP for, for quite a while is that they quite often will look at the result rather than, you know, the not, not even so much the intent because I, like Sean Burgoyne doesn't strike me as a, you know, as the sort of player who, who's violent or, you know, does anything with any sort of negligence or, or reckless nature. I think it was just a, a poorly timed attempt at a tackle, but, you know, you've still got to look at what the potential injury could have been. And I mean, you hit your head on the ground. How many guys have walked off with concussions from that sort of thing? So, yeah, I think a week would have probably been fair on that. You don't have to go over the top, but, you know, send a message. Yeah, I don't think I'd be happy with a week too. Our Saturday uh, fixtures. Well, I think pretty much it was the Charlie Cameron show. He was pretty much the difference in the uh, Lions and Dockers. I think the Dockers actually put up a really good effort um, over there at the Gabba. Yeah, they did. This was a, a real up and down game for, you know, certainly for the first half. Um, you know, a couple of times it looked like Brisbane were about to run away with it, but um, some some timely goals were, uh, you know, certainly kicked by the Dockers. Third quarter was was 
pretty much all Brisbane. But, you know, again, full credit to the Dockers. They, they fought back. They were incredibly unlucky. Matt Taberner had a, a mark disallowed on the goal line, which I, you know, I, th- I think was a very, very key moment in the in the game, which could very easily... I mean, it would have would have been a, a certain goal. He would have been literally walking back and, and taking his taking a shot from the top of the goal square, which, you know, certainly would have brought it back to, I think, within a kick at, the, at that stage. Um, you know, and, and I think Brisbane were very lucky. They were very, very lucky. Um, you know, they, they they didn't play up to their their usual standard. You know, they gave Fremantle a lot of chances, and, and you know they're certainly very lucky. I mean, you're right, Charlie Cameron was was fantastic, and um, yeah, there are a few other blokes. I didn't get a chance to see all of it. He was the difference for mine. I, yeah, we we went down the pub and and uh, spent a large portion of the day there to kind of enjoy the festivities with footy back and and watching on the big screen and. It almost felt like normal again, and and you know people were sharing drinks and all sorts of stuff. The distancing <laughs> wasn't quite as good as it could have been. But yeah, for my, I mean, the prevailing thought for me was that Charlie Cameron with his four goals was pretty much the difference. And whenever the Dockers knocked on the door, Brisbane would pull away again, and and it was just enough to get them over the line. Yeah, I mean, Lockie Neal was I thought was was great as well. Um, you know, the Dockers unfortunately probably relied on too few. Um, you know, Walters and, and Fife were, were fantastic. And I think James Aish was was fantastic as well. But, you know, there were a few guys that were probably a little bit down on, on what you'd expect. Um, certainly not going to name names on here. But, but uh, you know, I think, yeah, I think you're right. They, they probably, uh, that, that Charlie Cameron effect probably was probably just the difference in a very close game. In yet another close game and in yet another tale of two halves, we had Melbourne hit Carlton by one point in one of those games where... If it had gone a couple of extra minutes, you think Carlton probably would have had the win. We watched the start of this one and Melbourne pulled away uh, comfortably early and so it looked like it was in the bag. And then kind of I, I just didn't keep track of it because I thought it was in the bag. And then I kind of looked up and I thought, oh, it was less than a goal with a few minutes left. So watch the end of that one. That was quite surprising. But Melbourne, very lucky to escape that one. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I had pretty much the exact same experience. Got to half time and went, no, nah, don't have uh, don't have the energy for this right now. But um, but yeah, definitely was very very surprised to see that Carlton nearly nearly pipped him. Um, it, it is. It's just fascinating to me how many of these games were just you know one game in in the first half and a completely different game in the second half. It's um, it's it's insane. Um, obviously, really, really sad news about Nick Newman as well. I, I don't know if you saw the the knee injury. Um, didn't look particularly great, and it's. I think it's been confirmed that he is he is done for the season now, um, barring some sort of you know extra layoff. I was surprised because I thought we escaped without any major injuries. So there you go. I missed that one. No, no, it it wasn't great. Um, certainly. Yeah, certainly he's he's well and truly done it. And it, you know, I mean, we were, I suppose, bound to have some sort of injury, but I guess we were probably expecting it was going to be more likely to be the soft tissue sort of injuries rather than a, you know, rather than somebody doing a knee. In Adelaide, we had the showdown before the teams head over to the Queensland hub to uh, commence round three. And it was the most lopsided showdown in AFL history with Port very, very comfortably winning 110 to 35. Adelaide, what a fall from grace. They are in disarray. Yeah, you'd probably call this the blowdown because, uh, you know, the, 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 the Crows, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrible to, to see it. I mean, it. I mean, it happened so quickly from 2017, 
you know, the following year. I don't even know if they made the made the finals, but they've been, yeah, certainly in a lot of disarray for a, for a while. And I mean, just you know, again, looking at at how many. I'm just looking at the at the player stats, and you've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of the top eight players in terms of the uh, the fantasy team points were Port Adelaide players. It was just that one-sided. Um, yeah, it's just it's it's hard to believe that this is the same Adelaide. Well, it's not the same Adelaide side. Obviously, they've lost a lot of big-name players, but um, you know, does this all come back to that that horrible preseason trip that they they took? Was it before? I think it was before 2018, and kind of. Destroyed their their entire. Uh, I think it might have been. Was it before? It might have been before. Oh, it might have been twenty seventeen. I thought it might have been before last season. Actually, um, oh, obviously, Matty Nix came in this year, and geez, what a poison chalice he's inherited. Um, it's yes. you know the off season started with the well slap on the wrist, but when they shouldn't have been training, and then then we have this. Uh, much has been made of his defensive strategy, and and there's been a lot of criticism from people, including former coach and premiership coach indeed, Malcolm Blight. So poor Nixie's already on the hot seat, and it's only round two. I mean, how, how's this for a, a damning stat as well? Inside fifties, fifty-seven to thirty. You just you just can't expect, you know, you can't expect any anyone to stay close in a game when you're getting smashed in the inside fifties. And and Adelaide's efficiency inside the fifty was at thirty percent for the match, which is just disgraceful. So, yeah, it's certainly it's looking like it could potentially be a very very long year for the Crows. Um, so not not great. They'd have to be wooden spoon favourites at this stage, I'd say. You, you would think so. It's it's going to take some serious stuff over the next few weeks for somebody else to challenge for, for that. And speaking of wooden spoon favourites, a team that has <laughs> been cellar dwellers for several seasons and never looked like they're going to win more than a handful of games. Stewie, what happened in the Suns versus Eagles? Yeah, not certainly not what I was hoping for as an Eagles fan, but... You know, whilst it was incredibly disappointing for you know for me as a, as an Eagles fan, I really wanted to focus, I guess, on how how great the Gold Coast Suns looked. They well and truly won this game. They they you know it wasn't a case of the Eagles losing it. Gold Coast came in and took it with with both hands. Um, the likes of Matthew Rollo, he was easily best on ground for me. Noah Anderson, um, you know, guys like Lockie Weller, Braden Fiorini, Sam Day, you know. These guys were were fantastic. I mean, Sam Day looked like he was done for the day. He copped that nasty knee from Jeremy McGovern, sort of in the in the the kidney area, and it looked like he might have been done. And you know, he came back and was was instrumental up front. Um, just to see the you know the the constant pressure from the Suns. This is something that we haven't really seen from them in their entire history. Um, you know, and it just it never felt like West Coast ever really had more than a couple of seconds to to make a decision and most of the time it was you know they're getting tackled as soon as they've got the ball so it's actually really it was refreshing for me to see them actually almost throw the first punch so to speak um and i think i can only really remember one passage in the game where they had their trap beaten convincingly and um you know it, it just it felt like every tackle they had stuck in it and it felt like certainly a lot of the west coast eagles tackles definitely were missed so it, it'd be fascinating to see what the missed tackle stat was but um as i say f- fair play to them i mean again the eagles had a lot of uh, a lot of passengers particularly in defense they they were I, I thought woeful in defense the midfield wasn't amazing but um it would have been really, really good to have somebody like a Mark Hutchings available to put a, a tagger role on against this role guy. But, um, and I think Took Miller did the same with Tim Kelly after he kind of got off the chain early. But um, no, look, honestly, fair play to them. I think it's, um, I think it was really, really great to see, you know, 
Gold Coast effectively become adults in this in this league. So um, very very impressive. So we we left the pub. It was about a goal in it when we left the pub, and by this by this stage it's about seven pm, and we'd been there since eleven watching the Dockers game, and the drinks had been flowing. So uh, I knew you'd be watching this one. So I, I I I got a message from you, and I just assumed it was probably I don't know you won in a close nail biter or something where you should have flogged them. I could not believe it when I saw the score. Could not believe it. But I think clearly their two their, their top two draft picks, Roll and Anderson, clearly. Uh, have already stamped their their authority on the team, um, and it's it's great for the league. It's great for them. Um, good on them, you know. Uh, there's there's massive reps for all, and or how do you say it? Raul, roll. Um, the I'd burn say of roll because ex- he, he was he was on a roll. He was on a roll all weekend. Yeah. Um, the burn of expectation. Let's hope that's not going to, you know, he could hit the wall halfway through the season and you wouldn't blame him even if he did because he's such a young bloke. But really, um, really positive signs there for, as I say, for the team and the league. I think it's good. The league needs Gold Coast to be a good team. So, um, so big surprise, but... Uh, yeah, no, I, I haven't... I, I, don't think I've, I don't think I've seen a second game player look so poised and so almost untouchable. He was he just couldn't tackle the bloke. So, um, and it could just be that West Coast were, were not uh, not tackling as well as they should be. But no, he he looked like a he looked like a fifty game player the way he played. From the disappointment of your team losing to the glory of picking one, Stewie, you had the had the uh, the right stuff when you had North over GWS, our first Sunday game. Yeah, I, there was just something about this this game. It just I don't even know what it was. It just didn't – I felt like this was a real danger game for the Giants. Um, you know, the weight of expectations on this side, the fact that it's, you know, it's another home game as well. But, um, no, there was, there was just something going into it that, that had me saying that, that North Melbourne are going to give them a, a really good run if they don't beat them. And, um, you know, this – I think North Melbourne could potentially be one of those sides that a lot of us – sort of slept on a little bit. I mean, Trent Dumont is looking, looking like a million dollars. Um, you know, Jared Pollock was, was fantastic. Toddy Goldstein, 51 hit outs, absolutely, you know, just destroyed the ruck. Um, and against Sam Jacobs as well, you know, a really quality ruckman, but he, um, you know, he, he beat him fairly convincingly there as well. So, um, you know, this is another one where you look at the top, you know, the top sort of 10 players in terms of dream team points. And, you know, you've only got Stephen Coniglio from, from GWS in there. So I dare I say it, it could it potentially could have even been a, a bigger margin. Great to see Reshaw um, have some success. Obviously he was caretaker coach last year and it wasn't guaranteed that he'd get the gig, but I think clearly, you know, he's, he's repaid them in spades already. Um, and obviously, you know, a, a premiership player for the Swans, um, quite fond of recent. So it's, it's really great, great to see him already have some early success. So hopefully this is the start of a really good long coaching career for him. Speaking of the Swans, my Swans had a six-point loss to the Bombers in Sydney. It was a bit similar to the Brisbane Frio game in the sense that uh, Essendon always had their stamp on the game, but not enough to put it away. And so we're always knocking on the door, knocking on the door. But uh, at the end of the day, Essendon had just enough to get over the line. Yeah, it kind of felt like that, 
I mean, you would know having younger brothers, you know, sort of when you're, when you're growing up kind of, you know, running, holding, dangling something in front of them, you know, just outside of their reach so that they, <laughs> you know, they, they, they feel like they're a chance of getting whatever it happens to be. It could be a chocolate bar or a video game or whatever it happens to be. And it just felt like, you know, the bombers were just dangling this carrot right in front of the swans, just in front of them, but not, not close enough that they could actually reach out and get it. But, um, Look, it was, again, this was a, a great game to watch. And, you know, in particular, the last quarter, I, th- I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, you know, you, you just never felt like the Swans were quite close enough to get there. But, um, but still, you know, a great game to watch. And, and I, was obvious, I was very, very happy. I think after last week, I mentioned that um, McDonald Tip and Woody probably wouldn't play. It was great to see him out running around there and, uh, you know, getting up to his usual, usual mischief. But um, Nathan, I think it's probably better for you to talk about uh, about this, considering this is your team. So, oh, I think, as I say, I think it was similar to the Brisbane Freo game, and I think uh, not only you know one team was just never close enough, but I think also a good start. So Brisbane had a good start in their game, and and Essendon had a good start in our game, and I think basically that was the difference. Really, um, we were constantly kind of chasing, and we got there or thereabouts. On a number of occasions, but it just it just wasn't enough. Um, and you know, without Buddy and Sam Reed, no tall marking options uh, up forward. A couple of guys were a bit quiet in the first half. Jake Jake Lloyd came to life in the second half, but he was a little bit quiet in the first half. So yeah, it, it, it wasn't all that surprising. I mean, Essendon have a pretty good list. They could they could surprise a few people this year, I think, and they might upset some some big name teams too. So um, disappointing, but not surprising. I just just one thing I did quick I did notice as well, Ollie Florent had he had, he had six hundred and thirty five meters gained in the game, that is a huge amount. It, it my fingers are crossed that he's taken he seems to have taken the next step. Ollie was he played very well he played very well. I'm yeah, hopeful. I just just when you look out for these you know these things that really jump off the page at you, you know the the meters gained for him and Dane Rampy as well he had just under 580 odds so you know at least he big wasn't climbing any there. posts this time well oh, that's a whole other story but um, <laughs> but no it's it's to me yeah that's that's really really interesting just to see you know just how much penetration he's got. I mean um, I mean Florent had 22 of his 27 disposals were kicks so I guess that makes sense but um, you know he's obviously getting good distance on him which is yeah, which is quite, and I guess seven clearances to go with that kind of makes sense. But and then finally, a bit of a fizzer, uh, and a, a bit surprising too, because a lot of people have the had the dogs as premiership contenders, but uh, they didn't play McLean, they didn't play Libba. Uh, there were a number of premiership players that it wasn't because of injury; they just weren't in the team. And uh, St Kilda beat them handily and embarrassed them a little, actually, if you look at some of the footage. Yeah, look, this is one I'll certainly admit that I didn't. Uh, I didn't get a chance to watch that. Unfortunately, my uh, domestic duties on the Sunday got in the way. But um, you know, I sort of had the game cast going on in the in the background, and uh, yeah, just obviously St Kilda ran away with it. I mean, look, the, the Saints again. They're gonna they're gonna surprise teams. This could just be. Uh, look, I, I'll say this: I don't think that the Bulldogs are going to really be much of a threat for you know for any sort of September action. But I yeah, I certainly didn't October think that they action. would be. That, Oh, sorry. I told, yeah, sorry. That's that's me using the well. The, well, hopefully they're still playing in September, but um, but no, it's September action might be all they get. 
that's very true actually very true but now look it's um i mean it's the usual suspects for for st kilda guys like like jack billings and seb ross and, and jack Steele and those sorts of guys gresham looked like he had a, a usual you know his usual sort of solid game as well so um yeah so i wish i, I could have watched this but although in, in i guess in hindsight it didn't look like a particularly entertaining game anyway if i'm not mistaken there's only three teams that are two and oh after two rounds Correct. That's the first time that has happened since 2006. Wow. So wow. hopefully that's a hopefully that's an omen because last time, last time it happened, the Eagles won the premiership. So, but I don't think that's going to happen this year. Port Adelaide looked very, very good. Um, yeah, and I, I must admit, if you'd said that the three undefeated teams would be Port, North Melbourne, and Essendon, I would have, I would have spat my beer out. You know, to, to, yeah, to that makes that, it even more interesting. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Definitely. Really, it really does. You know, and it even looks at you know, for a decent amount of time, like there could be another draw that would have uh, would have meant there'd be only two sides of the Essendon Sydney game. Um, you know, I, I didn't get go any further back in terms of whether there were any seasons where only two teams were uh, were undefeated after round two. But and I guess by technic by technicality, Richmond have now gone a full year without having lost a game. So it was a draw, not a win. But technically, sure, a- they have. It was over a year ago since their last loss, and obviously, it's under unique circumstances. But it's still a fair effort. Well, I mean, a draw is not a loss, I guess. And the other great news was Harley Bennell. He, he uh, finished a game for Melbourne, his first game in over a thousand days. Obviously, wow. the Dockers the Dockers gave him a lifeline uh, a couple of years ago, and that never really panned out. And then Melbourne gave him a third chance, third time lucky, um, and it. it so far, so good. I think he had about 15 touches, so paid paid dividends for them, and they got up by a point. So, great return for him. Yeah, well, that's it. To be out for that long and actually get to get to sing the song at the end of the game is is a great thing. Uh, and you know, good on him. All the, all the best of, of luck for the rest of the season for him. And and you know, hopefully we get to see, I guess, some of the flashes of brilliance that we saw all those uh, all those years ago. And then obviously the other big story of the round, and this was uh, this goes beyond football and this goes beyond the score and, and the results, um, and that was the, uh, the unity displayed by all teams taking a knee for the Black Lives Matter movement, which was a really nice touch. And, and I think um, the, it was great to see all the players involved. And Paddy Dangerfield's um, said some really important things as, as the uh, head of the Players' Union um, that was a really nice touch, and unfortunately, it's caught some bash- backlash from the usual suspects. Um, but it was a really nice thing to see, and particularly the fact that the the teams intermingled um, in that little protest rather than traditionally standing together with their teammates. Yeah, I mean, look, it's certainly is it's disappointing to see some of the guys in the you know, in the media talking about you know the the teams they shouldn't be doing this. It's not it's not right. It's not the right message. Whatever, like. You know, this this is guys taking a stand against racism, and unfortunately, we we saw, I suppose, a couple of you know very very disappointing things in social media during the week. I mean, the first one was the 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 Fremantle Dockers member who uh, who basically said that he would, you know, he'd be returning his membership if uh, you know if if the Dockers took a knee on the weekend. And look, first class response from the from the club turning around and. You know, tweeting him straight back and just saying, "Look, someone will be in contact about uh, you know about your your refund on your membership." I think that was a, a yeah, say an absolutely first class response from from the club. So, you know, good on them for for taking a stand against what is just an utterly ridiculous comment. 
the, the, the disappointing thing for me is the politicisation of it. This isn't a political issue. This is a social issue. This is a societal issue that people make political. And obviously you and I as um, middle-class white people, we'll, we'll never understand the experience that Indigenous people and um, people of colour go through. And the best that we can do is be as empathetic as possible and try and be understanding. And it's a real shame that when, you know, things that are meant to unite us, like teams standing together or kneeling together in this case, as a bit of a nod to what was going on in the NFL in America, it's really disappointing. Like I, People should just keep their mouths shut. If you don't like it, why do you have to politicise it? Again, as I say, I don't think it's a political issue. I think it's a societal issue. We can all do better and we all should do better. Agreed. I mean, look, one thing I, I will say is, you know, you, you and I have done, you know, a fair bit of travelling for Cricket World Cups and, you know, we've encountered very, very small pockets of, of racism. I think in, uh, in St. Lucia, uh, we, you know, we copped a, a little bit of racism towards us from, from some of the locals there, which, um, you know, over the course of a, a few minutes and, um, you know, I, I didn't, I wouldn't say I copped any racism in India, but I certainly, um, you know, I certainly understood what it was like to be looked at as different walking around the streets there in, in, a, in a, an area where, um, of, of Ahmedabad where nobody really sort of goes traveling there, I guess, for tourism. So, um, you know, even to just have that small glimpse at, at, you know, what it's like, I guess, to be, to be perceived as, as different, um, you know, and to, to know that these guys are having to go through it their whole life, um, you know, moving on to, to Eddie Betts, you know, hearing his comments through the week that he hasn't gone through an entire season yet where he hasn't endured some kind of racism. Um, you know, you go back to him having, the bananas thrown at him. And obviously this absolutely ridiculous tweet that went on online during the week where, you know, somebody posted a picture of a chimpanzee. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's disgraceful. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. It shouldn't be happening in 2020. I mean, it shouldn't have been happening for decades, but the fact that it's still happening in 2020 is really disappointing. And obviously, unfortunately, Adam Goods became a bit of a martyr, but um, hopefully it feels like the tides are changing. So hopefully we're heading in the right direction finally as a collective society around the world. Yep. And I think the, the biggest disappointment from all of it is, is the same kind of disappointment as, as there is in the rest of society. You know, why can't we celebrate these, these AFL players for the brilliance that they have? I mean, Adam Goods had, a, you know, a Hall of Fame career. You know, Eddie Betts is one of the greatest forwards that, you know, certainly our generation has seen and probably one of the greatest of all time um, as well in terms of those, that, that little sort of forward He's certainly sort a, of guy. a Carlton great, if not an AFL great, absolutely. I would say he's an AFL great, definitely. Um, had you know, a pretty so good career in Adelaide too. Well, he did. He did. So, you know, so not, not being able to just separate all of that stuff and just say he is a fantastic player. And, you know, from, from all accounts, an absolutely first-class person as well. So, um, you know, incredibly disappointing. And obviously, you know, that kind of, look, you know, that's the same way that society should be looking at this is that, you know, we, we all sort of talk about it's nothing to do with the colour of, color of your skin. We're all the same colour on the inside. Absolutely. And, and obviously, given we've only just started this podcast, it's not our desire to be political. It's not our desire to stick our necks out, but it would be remiss of us not to discuss these things. And so 
Um, it was a really nice gesture. I hope they do it for the rest of the season. I'm not sure what the plans are with the kneeling before games um, in intermingled teams, but I think it would be a really nice touch if they did do it throughout the duration of the season. Uh, look, I just hope to God that this is the last that we have to talk about it. I just honestly hope that you know nobody else decides that they want to try and be a hero or, or try and make a, make a stand against something that is just out and out wrong. So, you know, fingers crossed this will be the last sort of ridiculous racism that we will see full stop, basically. And now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, I'm taking my bloody hell across to, uh, across to Serbia. It has to be the, the Novak Djokovic Adria tour um, that took place in Belgrade this, uh, this week. Um, it's actually probably not quite as upbeat as, as we were hoping for, but you know, in this, in this current climate and, and particularly in a, in a continent in Europe where there have been so many cases, um, you know, for those of you who haven't seen, Novak Djokovic has set up a, a, a mini tour across places like, like Serbia, Montenegro, uh, Croatia, Macedonia, and so on. Um, a lot of these sort of these Eastern European countries. And, you know, he's, the, the first event was in Belgrade. They had a, a, a stadium full, absolutely full of, 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 a, of a crowd, effectively. And, and a lot of these players playing an exhibition not even a proper tournament. So, you know, to see these players, in, you know, engaging in hugs and high fives and all sorts of interaction while, you know, the, the crowd, well, the, the stands are absolutely packed. It's, it's kind of almost hard not to shake your head. And I mean, that well and truly made me say bloody hell. Well, that in um, of itself is, is crazy enough. But what makes it even crazier is that he's not playing in the US Open because he doesn't think it's safe. Well, exactly. I mean, if you look at some of the other things that, that you can add onto, onto it, he's, he's had some very interesting moments in recent times, you know, aside from his anti-vaxxer comments, which we're not going to get into because, again, don't want to be too political. But, you know, to, to complain about the US Open conditions, um, you know, including only being able to have one member of his team there, you know, instead of his entire entourage, it's, it's something that a lot of the lower-ranked players have, have scoffed at, you know, calling him entitled. Um, you know, he's a, he attended a basketball game in Serbia while he was there and had contact with a player named Nikola Jankovic, who later tested positive for coronavirus. Oops. Right. Uh, and, he, and he even took part in a, in a social football match while he was there with lots of hugs and huddles and all sorts of things. I mean, I guess question without notice. Is, is this irresponsible or is it, his, is it his right? Well, first of all, hugs and huddles probably should be the name of our uh, podcast, I think. That was... Oh. That was that was lovely. No, um, it's, it's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling for, on one hand, to not want to go to the US because you're worried about your health or seemingly that seems to be his reasoning. And then, on the other hand, to be engaging in all this sort of behaviour. Absolutely, the, the, um, the role model aspect has to be considered. And there's been some kind of, you know, a lot of people are saying, with going back to the AFL a little bit, you know, oh, why are they sitting a metre and a half between each other on the bench when they're tackling and cuddling after goals and all this sort of thing. Or cuddle's probably not the best word. But um, but it's about sending a message. It is about sending a message. And he just all he's doing is sending mixed messages. Bloody hell. So I guess, um, yeah, 
aside from that making me say bloody hell, we've, we've had some, a lot of other interesting stuff in the tennis this week. So um, the U S open has officially announced it will be this, the first grand slam played since COVID. So they're, they've got a start date of the 31st of August. So we're talking about six weeks away um, in New York, but the French Open's not starting too far after that, so it, it really cast doubt on a lot of the a lot of the older European players and whether they will make the trip across the Atlantic. Um, obviously, you know there's there's a lot of the um, the quarantining that they'll have to do, probably I assume going both ways as well. Um, like New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, he, he came out and and basically said that the USTA are taking extraordinary precautions to protect the players and staff. You know, they've got robust testing, additional cleaning, extra locker room space, dedicated housing and transportation. Um, the fact that there won't be any crowds there as well. So it's, it's looking like it's going to be a very, very different kind of us open. And, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of the big name players are, you know, very much, you know, they're voicing their concerns and, and there's a lot of a strong likelihood that a lot of them won't play. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because Wimbledon's been cancelled for the first time since I don't know World War Two, I think it is. So on one hand, we've on one hand we've got Wimbledon cancelled, and then on the other hand, we've got New York going ahead. I mean, the the cases in America are still out of control. Just today, it was reported that six states, including Florida, and we'll get to the NBA uh, later as well, um, had their biggest single day cases so far. So they're still exploding the number of cases over there. So I, I think as far as sport is concerned, the US is probably the most tenuous, but they're, they're really trying to ramp things up and still get things going. The fact that Wimbledon was, I think, smart enough to, to call it off. I mean, it's one year. There's, you know, it's, it's very, very easy to, you know, to say that we want, we want tennis to be back, but, you know, you've got to look at, at where it is. I mean, New York is probably not the best place to be having this. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of really, it's, it's the world epicenter of the, of the virus. So, um, I guess yeah, that, you know, the only of, place worse would be Rio de Janeiro, I think. Or, Wuhan. Yeah, or, or, or potentially Wuhan. I think they're, yeah, they're about to go into their second, uh, phase of it, I guess. But yeah, there's not many places that would be worse. So, um, I guess on the on the the back of what we did last week with the winners and losers in the NBA, I, I kind of wanted to look a little bit at the uh, the winners and losers for, or probably round the other way. I'll maybe look at the losers first for the for the tennis now. Um, obviously, the, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, look, the the big losers, I guess, are you know a lot of these big name players. I mean, we'll take Roger Federer out of out of the the whole equation because he's already shut himself down for the season with knee surgery, um, which. You know, as a massive Roger Federer fan, I, it's it's concerning. He's nearly thirty nine, so you sort of almost wonder how much time he has left, and and whether he maybe will only play the the big tournaments. But um, but yeah, Novak Djokovic and Rafa Nadal are probably the the biggest losers in this, purely because of the fact that you know they're chasing Federer. Um, Djokovic has got seventeen Grand Slams. Nadal has eighteen. Um, they're chasing Federer, who's on twenty. Djokovic is 33 and Nadal's 34. They're not getting any younger. So, you know, every time one of these, one of these events sort of rolls by without them actually playing in it, it's, it's another opportunity. And it's, it's, you know, the, the rest of the field, I guess, are just slowly bridging the gap a little bit. So, um, so certainly, you know, those guys are, are probably the big losers, the biggest losers here. I've got a question for you, mate. If you were Rafa Nadal, would you go, maybe I'll just play the French Open? He's so oh, good 100%. on clay. He's so good on clay. That would get him up to 19, one behind Federer. He could cut his losses on the US. 
not have to travel to the States, stay in Europe, play at the French Open, maybe get another win with the field smaller. Look, it's yeah. I mean, I think that's probably actually the way that he that he's doing it. I mean, yeah. Look, it's a it's a fair call. I mean, he's probably I think he's won at twelve out of the last fifteen years playing on uh, at Roland Garros. So, I can kind of understand him doing it. Um, I, I don't. I don't have off the top of my head. I don't know exactly how many times. I think oh, the U.S. Open actually. Well, he's the U.S. Open champion at the moment, so um, he's actually won two of the last three. So it's. You know, it's another opportunity. But look, I can kind of understand why they wouldn't go. But um, you know, again, it's it's look, it's just another opportunity. I th- you're probably right. I think he's probably just saying, look, let's just commit to clay. I'm probably going to win that again because I'm almost undefeatable when it comes to clay. But um, yeah, it's, it was just interesting. It was very interesting. I mean, looking at the women's side, Serena Williams is another one that a lot of people haven't uh, you know have, have probably not really looked at. Um, you know, there's a lot of speculation from uh, from her coach that, that she might miss the Open too. Um, I mean, Serena's 38. She's in a very similar position to Federer in that she's kind of closing in on the end of her career. And um, from what I've sort of seen in the last few years, she seems to be finding it harder and harder to stay engaged for the full two weeks. And I guess her chances of extending her lead over Steffi Graf you know, in terms of, I think she's currently one ahead of, uh, of graph in terms of, of grand slams. It's, you know, it's looking shakier every time. So. And tennis seems to be more of a young person's game on the women's side than on the men's side. And, you know, when you think of people like Coco Goff and, and um, Naomi Osaka, uh, I, I think you're right. I think Serena must be very close now to the end. Oh, look, she, she can't be too far off. And I mean, yeah, let's not forget that the world number one, Ash Barty, is 24. So you, you're right. I think the women's game, you know, and you, you saw it a little bit with Venus Williams. I think she um, she dropped off quite, you know, quite quickly. So, um, yeah, it's it, it's definitely, I think the men had, had seemed to kind of hold on to, you know, onto that that ability and I guess that that sta- had that better staying power, I guess, is probably what I'm, what I'm looking for um, at, at the top. So... It's it crazy to hear Ash. Though. It's crazy to hear Ash is only twenty-four because it feels like she's been around forever, <laughs> having played in the women's big bash as well, uh, changed codes a couple of times. But she's thinking of not going over as well. She's made that pretty clear. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the Aussies are. I mean, I, I think the, there there was a lot of tweets that came out from from guys like Nick Kyrgios and John Millman who were were very much against the idea. Um, you know, Kyrgios made the, the very valid point that aside from the COVID stuff, you've got all of these riots and 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 protest marches going on as well that we kind of need to sort out before tennis. So yeah, it's 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 going to be very very interesting. Um, and and I guess you know the point you make about Barty and the fact that she's only twenty four as well is you know, another thing I guess when it comes to the fact that women's tennis is just so much younger, I guess, in terms of the, the quality players. I mean, you go back to the 90s and players, you know, someone like a, a Martina Hingis, um, who I think was, you know, dominating the world in her teenage years. Um, you know, there have been a lot of them over the years that have that have done incredibly well, whereas you don't see too Sharapova many guys. Sharapova more recently. Yeah, Sharapova. There's, there's a lot of players... Um, you know that that have in that women's draw, I guess that have, that have dominated from a young a young age. Um, kind of kind of got off topic a little bit there, anyway. But um, I think the the other big loser, though, I, you know, is kind of the people of New York. Um, you know, they've they've had it really tough. They've they've been this almost like yeah, as I said before, the epicenter of the virus for a while. 
them not being able to attend is it's it's a real shame. Um, I know that it's not a smart decision to have them in the stadiums. I mean, you could potentially try and social distance them and have, you know, kind of what they've talked about in the AFL with having these these sparse crowds among the stadium. Uh, they could potentially have looked to do something like that, but I, th- I think obviously with all the stuff that's going on, they they're just they're just playing it overly safe. I think when it comes to the the safety of the players um, by just locking them out completely, and um, you know there'll be some other other players that will potentially miss out. Um, I look at someone like a Gael Monfils, the the Frenchman who you know really traditionally plays off that uh, off that crowd. Um, you know, on the other side of it, you've got a, like a Daniel Medvedev, who's kind of like a, he's like the villain. He he loves the fact that the crowds are against him all the time. So, you know, there are players that will, that will potentially lose the little bit by just not having that, that atmosphere. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be nuts. Um, Who are our winners then, Stewie? You've uh, identified some losers. There must be some winners. <laughs> Oh, oh, there definitely are. There's a lot of winners. Um, for me, I mean, I guess just looking at the numbers, the winners are pretty much every player who's not... Well, every player who goes across and actually plays is probably going to be a winner. Um, looking at the men's side, you know, the, like if looking at the Grand Slams and, and just the dominance of the, the Federer, Nadal and Djokovic era, um, since 2006, there's been one winner not from the big three, um, which was Stan Vavrinka in 2014. Stand the French the Open. Stan the man, yep. Um, Stan won the French Open in 2015. He's the only winner not from the big three since 2005. Um, at Wimbledon since 2003, the only person not to not from the big three to win it is Andy Murray in 2013 and 2016. Um, and then the US Open since 2004, they've had you've had Juan Martín del Potro, Andy Murray, Marin Cilic, and Stan Wawrinka. So, 48 of the last 56 Grand Slams have been won by a Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic. So, 86% since 2006. It's ridiculous. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. They have a monopoly. <laughs> they they really do. So, you know, this could potentially be you know while whilst we'll talk about the asterisk seasons a little bit more down the track this could and probably will have an asterisk over it it's at least a chance for someone else to make maybe a breakthrough winner like like a daniel medvedev a dominic team a stefano Tsitsipas, alex verev a lot of those guys um you know it could be somebody from the outside looking in someone like gregor dimitrov uh, who has had a you know, he had a, an incredible drop, but he's had this ridiculous return to form and has, has shot his way back up the standings. Um, it could be a year for an American. Someone like John Isner might, you know, big server, um, you know, someone who's got the game to, to do it, you know, would be someone like a John Isner. Um, in the women's, you know, it could be someone like Sophia Kenin, who uh, unfortunately took out Ash Barty in the semifinals of the, uh, of the Australian Open, but uh, went on to actually win, win her first Grand Slam. Um, but you know you've got a lot of the, a lot of their players like Carolina Pliskova came out and uh, she'd be the the third seed and she said she is absolutely dying to to get over and play tennis. She said nothing could stop her really. So um, you know I, th- I think definitely it's a, it's a chance for some of these other players to to pick up a Grand Slam, even though it probably will have a a bit of an asterisk next to it. So um, really they're probably the main winners in this. I, I wouldn't sort of go as far as to say there's anyone else. I mean, I guess you could say the fans watching on TV, because at least we'll actually get to see some, some, you know, some real tennis, but um, yeah, it's, it's probably just the other players really. That's the, they're the main winners. 
Well, that's a really good point, Stewie. And, and I think that's a perfect segue into our next discussion, which is about asterisk seasons. And indeed, 2020 is an asterisk year. But I think actually, in many cases, particularly in American sport, 2021 could be asterisk years too. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. I think probably our first two um, experiences with it this year were in the Sheffield Shield and, you know, New South Wales were always going to win that. I don't think anyone was too fussed about that one. But obviously our, our Perth Wildcats uh, were deemed champions this season, but in very unusual circumstances indeed. Uh, obviously, game one was in Sydney which we won 88-86, and that was in front of a crowd. And things were kind of normal then, but there was beginning to be rumblings of change. And then change happened really quick. So game two was five days later, and that was played in front of no fans uh, here in Perth, uh, which Sydney won quite comfortably. They won that one 97-83. And and this is where things started to change. And so they were trying to work out what do do we do? Do we play the rest of the five-game series? In Perth, do we do we cancel? What what happens now? Apparently, the, as reported, both teams were happy to go ahead and keep playing. They wanted to play the the duration of the series, and they wanted it to go ahead as planned. So, game three was played in Sydney, uh, again in front of no fans, and we won that one, one hundred eleven to ninety six. And then two days later, on the seventeenth of March, the Sydney Kings pulled the pin and basically forfeited. Uh, which led to the league, I believe it was only a day later, um, declaring the Wildcats the champion champions. And obviously, you look, we're a little bit one-eyed here. We're Perth fans, and, and uh, obviously we would say that they should have won. Um, but I think there was, apart from the fact that Sydney finished top of the ladder and they only finished top by one more win, uh, pretty much in every other category, the edge was to the Wildcats. We'd won two of the three games. Grand finals used to be three-game series anyway. Um, although there was that period where they were five-game series in the 2000s. Obviously, two of the three games were in Sydney, so we won them. Uh, we won the only game in front of fans. So I think, you know, I, I think from my reading of the situation, speaking to neutrals, uh, most people do seem to think that the Wildcats were the rightful champions. But how does this rack up with the other ones and, and how sweet is it? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I guess if you ask any of the players, you know, every championship is sweet, and and certainly, you know, from my point of view, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely doesn't feel quite as sweet as the other ones, purely because we didn't really get a chance to celebrate after game three the way that we would have had we known that that was the the decider. But um, you know, it, look, it's still a, an incredible victory, and and you know, beating a team in in the Sydney Kings who who were you know very very talented. Um, you know, there was arguments for part of the season that they actually had four imports at one stage because uh, I think Lazada from Brazil didn't actually count as an import. So, you know, to beat them as a very, very talented team, you know, two out of three and, and you know, to beat them twice in Sydney, I think is um, is very sweet. But yeah, it's it, it certainly is yeah not, not so much a hollow victory, but you know, knowing that they'll, they'll always, they'll always be that little asterisk next to it. And Sydney fans would always sort of argue that, you know, we never beat them three out of five. Um, you know, they had a very talented team and, and could easily have beaten us the next two games. Casper Ware hadn't played well. So, you know, he's, there's always the danger that he could very easily turn it around. I think he was from memory one of 16 from three or some abysmal number. So it you know, never looked he, like he was going to turn it around though, did it? it he, he was a it, shadow I mean, of his it, former self. It was actually yeah, shades I mean, of Damo stitching up uh, 
Cedric, Cedric Jackson. Jackson. Yeah. No, I must. I mean, it, it certainly never looked like he was really into the series. But I mean, you just never know with you know quality players like him. He, he could very easily you know switch it on, and next thing you know, the Kings win three two. So look, it, yeah, it doesn't. It probably doesn't feel quite as sweet as as any of the other ones. And look, we'll, we're very very fortunate in that we have so many other ones. You know, we had another nine to to choose from. But um, yeah, look, I mean, they're they're all sweet in their own way, I guess. And and you know, I guess we'll take it. Well, the other thing that makes it particularly interesting is that it's the second in a in a row for us. So potentially, you know, look, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But there was a bit of a scare there when Nick Kay and Bryce Cotton opted out, uh, as was their right. And it was a right that only four players took. Sydney got hit pretty bad as well. So not only did they lose the championship, but Kevin Lish has retired and Andrew Bogut's decided not to play next season. So I think Sydney could very easily drop out of the playoffs next season after being uh, the first team to ever lead from pillar to post in the regular season at the top of the ladder. Um, but luckily, luckily, Cotton has now come back. And not only has he come back, but he's signed for an extra two years. So we've got him locked up for the next three years. Hopefully, Kay will come back too. He wants to explore options in Europe. I don't know how wise that was. Uh, but he said that he was going to try and do that at the end of the contract anyway. So... He may, he may come back for one more year and try that in a year's time. Time will tell with that one. But potentially, and again, let's not get ahead of ourselves, but if the Wildcats win again, the whole three-peat, is it an asterisk three-peat? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I guess that there'd be people that would argue that. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 as I say, it's, it's an unfortunate thing that pretty much the entirety of this year or, or two is probably going to have that. But, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I guess a lot of people will just say that, you know, Sydney made the right choice because it just wasn't safe. But, um, you know, you could argue that, that, you know, Perth was probably one of the safest places to, to be coming to because we had very few cases at that stage, but, you know, well, that's it's right. I mean, if, if the reports are true, Perth tried to accommodate a full series as much as they could and Sydney were the ones that pulled the pin. And I think perhaps that was as much of a deciding factor as anything because, in, a, in effect, they ostensibly forfeited. Um, but also, I think we have to remember that a lot of the, the imports wanted to go home. So it wasn't, I think, so much necessarily about them catching anything. I think they wanted to go back to their loved ones in the States. Um, and indeed... Uh, Cook's opted out and he probably won't be back next season. So you can understand why the players did what they did. Um, but, you know, forever, this one's in the history books as an asterisk. And an asterisk is, I don't know, I don't know how you feel about it being a dirty word. It's definitely a dirty word in America. Um, to me, it just means something unusual happened. So the history books have to denote that it wasn't a regular or usual season in a sense. Um, obviously, being a Spurs fan, uh, our very first championship was an asterisk championship in a 50-win season. Uh, the reason why I... I mean, the interesting thing is I was very defensive about it because I felt like it was a legitimate championship. Um, the playoffs were still the same length. Uh, the games were still the same. There weren't any bogus, funny rules like, you know, uh, have been have been thrown out there for this upcoming resume uh, resumption of the NBA season. 
Um, so for me, that was a legitimate season. And of course, there's another NBA season that was an asterisk season, but everyone seems to forget about that one. I dare say perhaps because LeBron was involved. <laughs> yeah, the 2011-2012 one, which... Look, as a uh, as an Oklahoma City Thunder fan, I, I certainly remember that because that was the year that they they won the championship against OKC. But um, I will just quickly go back and just mention it was it was a fifty game season, not a fifty win season. It would have been nice to win fifty out of fifty in that one, but but no. If I'm not mistaken, we were we were thirty eight and twelve, I think, really. Yeah, thirty seven and thirteen, I think, That's around that mark. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's it is very interesting, and it's a good point that you make that. Certainly in that season, every team knew at the start of the season that they were playing 50 games. Every team knew that the playoffs would be the way that they were. You know, nothing, no team had an advantage. The only way you can kind of look at the Wildcats win is the, is the fact that, you know, they changed the goalposts after we'd won game three. So, you know, you, people could look at it that way. But anyway, yeah, going back to the, yeah, the NBA ones, I mean, the main people that, that actually labelled the Spurs season as an asterisk were Shaquille O'Neal and Phil Jackson who potentially were a little bit salty that the Spurs swept them in the second round so um, yeah they were claiming that it wasn't a normal season and that they you know they needed a little bit more time to be sort of at their peak but you know I think it just comes down to being ready Um, and I think you're right that it is it just denotes the fact that the season was different in some way but um, but yeah definitely the, the LeBron one never seems to get the same sort of mention you know the fact that you know, they lost 16 games. So it wasn't like they only lost a couple. They lost a good good chunk of the season. Um, but yeah, potentially because LeBron and, and, the, and the Miami Heat won that uh, won that championship, they, they don't seem to get spoken about as often, which is, is very interesting. So if we're going to rank asterisk seasons, how, how does this upcoming NBA season now? Again, we thought we were heading in the right direction with that one. There may be a bit of a hiccup. There's still no guarantee it will go ahead, as I say. Florida is one of the states where cases are still exploding over there. And there's been a contingent of uh, players led by Kyrie Irving and Dwight Howard who are saying that they should just forego the season and uh, continue with the Black Lives Matter movement. And that going returning to play would, would just kind of undo the good work that they've done because it would take the spotlight away from shining you know a light on really important issues and it would put it back on what's happening on the court um it's looking like it will still go ahead and there's no guarantees particularly in the states with the the way COVID's going over there but let's assume that it does go ahead and let's assume and and indeed the the league has come out and said if players don't want to play be it for uh health reasons or for um reasons to do with a principle or ideology, or what, however you want to explain it. Um, let's assume that it does go ahead. How, and again, I can't avoid this, given that they're playing at the Disney lot. How Mickey Mouse a season will this end up being? It's, look, it certainly would rank at the top in terms of the other, the other sort of two. Because, I mean, the, again, they've moved the goalposts you know, mid-season in this in this case, you know, the fact that home court advantage is is no longer a factor, and you know, all of the other ridiculous rule changes that they, they've floated the idea on, which we spoke about last week. It definitely, yeah, it, the fact that there's not going to be the crowds, the fact that it's, you know, just everyone playing out of this one hub, it it, it definitely does feel like it it will be probably the biggest asterisk out of all of them. Um, so. 
it's but i think the thing that i find so fascinating just going back to what you spoke about with with dwight howard as well i'm so fascinated that someone like dwight howard would be would be you know vocal about that considering you know one of his teammates in lebron james is so the opposite end of the spectrum on that and and also the fact that dwight howard has a very very strong chance of winning his first ever championship so i don't know why he would be wanting to try and call this season off and, and restart next year when everyone's potentially a year older. So, Well, yeah, I, I guess just, it's hard to know. argue with the principle if, if you think True. that, you know, obviously it's an incredibly important and poignant time in, in not only US history but in world history. So you can understand why players would, would be reluctant to return if they feel that it would turn attention away from, let's face it, issues that are much bigger than basketball. Um, but it's also interesting that LeBron's pulled a bit of a 180 because he originally said, if there's no fans, I don't want to play. So clearly he's changed his stance. But it's really complex, isn't it? Because there are livelihoods at stake here. Um, I heard Jay Williams, um, former um, lottery pick and, and uh, unfortunate uh, now media personality because his career was cut short due to a motorcycle accident. Uh, he was saying that, that 80% of the players in the NBA leave, live Paycheck to paycheck. So if that's the case, uh, then then they absolutely need to resume, and they and they would be champing at the bit to resume because if they don't play for whatever reason, they won't be earning their paychecks. Well, exactly, and and there's been a lot of people that have made some some very very key points about the fact that you know probably more than ninety percent of the people in the league will you know don't earn close to what you know, Kyrie Irving and Dwight Howard have made in their careers. Um, Austin Rivers made a really, really great point about the fact that, you know, by them going to work and earning their paychecks, they can actually do a lot more in these movements because they'll have more, more income that they can kind of throw to towards some of these, you know, yeah, some of the, some of these situations. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's just ridiculous. Well, Michael Jordan, you know, he's now a league owner. So he's gone from player to owner. It's very conceivable that LeBron could do the same thing when he retires. He's already got um, ownership stakes in Liverpool. So, so you're right. I mean, building your wealth, you can help a community. You can help, you can help your peers and your, you know, your family. Um, and I mean that in kind of a broader sense um, by, by playing and earning the money. So it's really complex and it's, it's going to be really interesting. And um to kind of take a step back, I can't wait to see all the documentaries that come out <laughs> when, yeah, when the well, dust has well, settled yeah. on this year. Because um, obviously there's a, a, an election in the US this year too. So it's a, it's a really fascinating period um, in our lifetimes. Yeah. And it may indeed be the biggest year of our lifetimes, you know. Yeah. You, you have to imagine, you know, not just in sport, but this entire year will have an asterisk next to it for just so, for, yeah, for so many reasons. It's, um, it's been crazy. We're now at a stage where the NBA has been off for so long that, well, if you include the planned resumption date, by the time they resume, the gap between when they stop playing games in March and when they resume in July will actually be longer than a normal off-season. So the domino effects and the ripple effects are huge. And so now they're talking of the following season starting in December. Um, so it's, it's going to be really fascinating. I think you're going to probably see two shortened seasons back to back. You're going to see one where the lead into the playoffs is, is funny because eight teams have already been eliminated. Um, but also you'll see, I mean, the, the NBA schedule may never be the same again 
this could be what precipitates a lot of the change that people have been talking about. And indeed, a lot of people say that the NBA is not relevant till December anyway. Um, a lot of people say that Christmas Day is the first NBA game they watch in the States, particularly if they're NFL fans. But I actually think, and this will be a nice segue into other asterisk seasons, Stewie, um, I actually think this could hurt Major League Baseball more than anyone because the NBA could be playing throughout summer during what is Major League Baseball time. And Jalen Rose has been saying recently on Get Up and, and other media sports centre in America that it should be a summer sport anyway. You're wearing singlets and shorts. So this, this could be a major shift in scheduling. And, and if, if the schedule does, does move from, you know, the start of, of December, potentially uh, it could be a, nearly a summer sport in the future. Which would be interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, you and I certainly have the, the mindset that, you know, the end of October around November time is, is when we kind of, you know, get geared up, I guess, for the NBA starting. And, yeah, to have it completely change would, yeah, would, would certainly throw, throw my brain out completely. So, um, well, it's I must admit, as an, as an NFL fan, I, I do tend to be a little bit of that mindset. I tend to start paying more attention once the Super Bowl's finished. So, yeah, in late December... Um, early the following year. Mm, yeah, I mean, look, I'll admit I'm certainly not not as big on the NFL, but um, I can I can understand certainly why that happens. Um, I guess yeah, the Major League Baseball is another one that's had you know some insane lockouts. I mean, they've they've had they've had entire seasons. I think 1994, the entire postseason, including the the World Series, was cancelled. They've had you know they had 1981 they had 713 games lost because of strikes um so they've they've had some pretty big stuff happen over the years and um i think they're what well, they had some something i think you mentioned last week or, or a couple of weeks ago to me that they were you know they they'd sort of all their talks had, had just completely fallen apart basically in terms of i think what were they trying to uh, abbreviate the season to 114 games was that what you said there, there was there, i mean uh, Baseball, Major League Baseball has a checkered history with labour shortages at the best of times. Um, initially, it looked like they were going to go ahead with a shortened season. Now, it's looking like it may, it may the whole thing may be cancelled before um, a pitch is even thrown. And again, you know, this, if the NBA starts to intrude on that territory schedule-wise, um, Major League Baseball, you know, America's pastime, who knows? It may never be the same again. So I think it's really interesting. Um, I heard yesterday uh, that the Players Association said that the minute a revised schedule was released, they would be um, lodging a, I think, billion-dollar lawsuit. So it's not looking good for baseball fans for 2020 particularly. Yeah, geez, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. I think you, I believe you had a, a very unusual one to round this, this segment out as well, Noth. Well, speaking of fascinating, and, and I, am, I am very interested in asterisk seasons going forward, and I think we should try and keep an eye on this for the rest of the year, and we might be able to dig out some other ones. But it may be very tough to, to beat this one. This is an incredible situation. So in 1916, the then Fitzroy Lions, obviously they're now in Brisbane, but the then Fitzroy Lions... Uh, played in a four-team competition. Now, this is obviously during the, the, the First World War. Um, but not only did they finish bottom of the ladder with a pretty average win-loss record of two wins, nine losses and a draw, they then went on 
to win the Premiership by virtue of the fact that all four teams competing also played in finals. Now, it gets even crazier. So they started the season really well. They won their first game against Carlton in a close one, the team that ended up being top of the ladder. Carlton finished the season at 10-2, and two, so they dominated the season. They won their second game comfortably. They drew their third game, and then they never won again for the rest of the home and away season until the semi-finals when they just pipped Collingwood by a goal. And then lo and behold, in the grand final, as I say, they beat a team that finished comfortably on top of the ladder at 10-2. and two. The next best was Collingwood at 6-5 and a draw. Um, they won 65-42. to 42. Um, uh, Oh, sorry. No, that was the prelim. No, they, this is the ridiculous part. They actually. Oh, this gets pre- even more crazy. Yeah, I yeah. missed this. No, no, <laughs> they played a pre. Yeah, they played. They played a prelim against each other, which Fitzroy won by by twenty by twenty by nearly four goals, and then they played again the the following week in the in the grand That's final. Right. Oh, it's, it's incredible. It's it's it's, in, it's utter insanity. It really is. You'd be hard pressed to find. We will we will search. We will search, but you would be absolutely hard pressed. To find and a, a and weirder a, asterisk season. And another little side note on that as well, which I found fascinating, was the fact that every single home and away game was played on, you know, some of the smaller, like the Punt Road Ovals and the Victoria Parks and, and so on and so forth. And then they played every single final at the MCG. So not a single game was played at the MCG until, until the final series. So it's the whole season is just... It's, it's, it's an amazing read. It really is. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, this COVID situation is probably the closest thing. I mean, the, the, these war seasons that have affected competitions over the years, thankfully a long time ago now, this is probably the closest comparison we have as far as majorly affected seasons are concerned. Um, so it's, it's fascinating. And, and the history books, you know... Uh, <laughs> They might be somewhat hollow premierships, but geez, they're memorable. They really are. And just to finish on a light note, Stewie, I believe you have a, well, I guess an asterisk victory of sorts to discuss. Yeah, it's, it's kind of asterisk. It's kind of asterisky in terms of the way that this all happens. So it's a story that's been making the news a, a little bit recently about, uh, about an event where Nick Kyrgios had uh, absolutely been out on the, on the town either the night before or a couple of nights before uh, a, a battle against Rafael Nadal, um, he was still actually hung over when he, was, uh, when he, when he walked onto the court um, and played some of his absolute best tennis and beat, uh, beat Nadal in straight sets, uh, just blasted him off the court. So um, he spoke about how, you know, he'd, he'd basically just said, right, I'm, I'm too hung over to move, so I'm just going to basically go big. So he was trying to hit aces, all the like first and second serve he was you know swinging for the fences on the on the ground strokes as well and he was he would just as i say he blasted nadal off that court so um he's he's always one to provide very interesting moments and we'll probably do a little bit of curious watch over the over the course of the next few months as as you know a lot of the stuff that he does is quite entertaining but oh look um, Stewie, i uh, don't get the only way i get my uh, fruit and veg is by taking the low hanging fruit every now and then and if if uh, if ever there's low hanging fruit it's curious news why not why not so what i wanted to do i guess off the back of that and just to again to finish off the the episode with a, a you know a bit of a laugh 
some of the more ridiculous stories of players being drunk or high, but actually still doing quite well. It's there's some some amazing ones out there. So we'll we'll start off in the tennis world. Um, in 1997, the uh, the Davis Cup was on in Adelaide, and, and Australia were playing the Czech Republic. And Pat Rafter and Mark Filipusis decided that you know what, Australia's up three nothing. We've we've won the we've won the tie. There's a couple of dead rubbers tomorrow. Let's you know let's go out in the town. And, uh, you know for for someone who's gone out in Adelaide and, and had a few drinks, it's, it's quite a fun place to, to go drinking in. And uh, they obviously yeah, tied one on very, very, very hard. And, and Pat Rafter actually played a Davis cup match the following day, still drunk um, and actually won the match. As long as he didn't try and serve Moore's balls. Oh, <laughs> for people who don't know, or who haven't been to Adelaide, you've got the, uh, is it the, it's the Rundle street mall, isn't it? Nath? Rundle mall. Yeah. Run them all, yeah, and there's these these two massive balls, basically one on top of each other, that are a uh, synonymous, I guess, with the, the centre of Adelaide. It was, you know, Nathan lived in Adelaide for a few years, and it was kind of a a meet up place before uh, before everyone had mobile phones. You would sort of meet up. At that's right. Yes, there. that's exactly right. Before before mobile phones were prevalent, uh, I spent my late high school years in Adelaide, and it was always meet at Malls Balls. Nice Always. and simple. You can't you can't miss them. They're ridiculously big. So, and uh, so and these players had pretty big balls to be under the influence and compete in professional. It's impressive. Play. It is. It is very impressive. So the next one I wanted to quickly uh, mention, I guess, is John Daly, and his isn't so much a single incident, but rather a, a career. Um, I, I was listening to a, a story, um, an interview we did with, with Graham Bensinger, and you know John Daly's been drinking got to the point where he he claimed that he played in a number of tournaments where you know he'd be out drinking until seven o'clock in the morning have a tea time at 805 and only just be sobering up by the 13th or 14th hole and he played some of his best golf while he was still drunk which is just fascinating he he reckons that that, yeah most of his best rounds were while he was under the influence of alcohol it almost gets performing it's enhancing at that point doesn't it it almost it almost is. I mean, it, he was talking about the fact that, you know, he he's not an alcoholic, but he's a binge drinker, um, and he was trying to certainly make make a point for there being a difference between the two. But he would say that you know he wouldn't drink for three or four months, and then all of a sudden he would drink every day for two months, and he'd be drinking, you know, half a case to a case of beer in a night, and uh, and, and then get onto the whiskey from there. So he was a, a very very big drinker, and and you know constantly you hear stories that he would tell of um you know points where he was drinking to a point where where people actually thought he should be dead um there was one point where he blacked out and woke up in a hospital i think it was and the the nurse had said like what you have you have as as a blood alcohol content you shouldn't be alive so so he's he's a fascinating one um, I guess staying in the uh, you know the the drunk careers, uh, Keon Clark, who had a six year career in the NBA, very solid role player with a number of teams, including Toronto and Sacramento, apparently never played a single game sober. <clears throat> he would drink between half a pint and a pint of gin every day. This all came out, funnily enough, in a in a drugs case that he was having. So while he was in court uh, fighting a drug charge, he actually spoke about this, which. Um, yeah, it was was fascinating. Really, really interesting to to hear because I, I watched many a game he was a part of, and you, you could not tell. 
I was actually quite a fan of his. I thought he was a handy big man. And speaking of handy big man, well, this, this bloke was more than handy. This bloke is a Hall of Famer. <laughs> oh, yes, the, uh, the round mound of rebound, Charles Barkley in 1992. This is another one that's been doing the rounds in, uh, in social media fairly recently. Um, yeah, in 1992, he got told by his agent that he'd been traded to the Los Angeles Lakers, I, I believe, for, for James Worthy. And uh, to celebrate the fact that he was getting out of Philadelphia, he, he went out on the, on, uh, on the town with a few of his friends and they'd been drinking, I think, from about midday to 3, 3.30 roughly. Um, and then the 76ers pulled out of the deal at the last minute. So it, Charles was absolutely hammered and actually ended up having to play that night. And he remembers very little of the game. Um, and there's varying there reports many, about the game, there isn't are. there? Because some people say he played well and others say he was horrendous. Yeah, there was. I've read reports that said he had twenty three and ten. I read others where he had, you know, eight points and four rebounds. It, look, either way, it's certainly not something that, uh, that that I would recommend. I mean, he would have been just, yeah, he would have been blind by that stage. So now we get into into baseball. Um, so David Wells of the the New York Yankees. Uh, there was a an incident where. He got home at five o'clock in the morning after being out all night drinking and had one hour of sleep. It was also a day, I believe it was a beanie baby day. So half the crowd were kids making, you know, an insane amount of noise. So you can imagine trying to do your job hung over, even in, you know, in complete silence, but then doing that with all that, that deafening screaming. And he went out and pitched a perfect game, which is incredibly difficult to do sober. So, you know, full credit exactly. There's not many people that have done it under normal circumstances. No. So to do that with, you know, a, a splitting headache, a nasty, nasty hangover and one hour of sleep is, is just, you know, insane. Now, speaking of insane, this is probably one of the more insane ones that I've heard. A guy named Doc Ellis, who played with the Pittsburgh Pirates back in the 1970s, apparently once threw a no-hitter against the Padres after taking two LSD tabs. <laughs> he, he, he apparently he apparently thought the game that was was the next day so he thought he had enough time to you know to take the drugs have it have a, a good time and then you know come down in time for the game but um from all reports he couldn't even tell who he was pitching to all he could really see was a silhouette that told him that they were a left-hander or a right-hander so it was just going by by the feel at that stage NFL's not without stories either, Stewie. I believe uh, that, uh, well, there's, there's, I've seen Kenny Stabler in, in a Super Bowl documentary talk about how speed was regularly used. But you have an interesting story about another Oakland Raider. I do. I do. A, a, a quarterback by the name of Todd Marinovich. Um, so this guy basically had a massive problem with crack and heroin. Uh, he would quite frequently be using during the games as well, which is interesting. He would go back at halftime and go into the stalls and, and, and light up. And during one game, he was actually trying to smoke some crack in, the, in a bathroom stall when his pipe broke and it actually cut his finger and it filled his bloodstream up with rock, basically. And, and what does he do? He goes straight back out in the field and starts calling plays. So, Incredible. yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Could not imagine that, um, but probably my favourite one in, in keeping with the uh, you know, with the football one. This is, I think, I, I think this is my favourite story of the lot, just purely because of this the situation. So it, it goes back to the first ever Super Bowl and backup receiver Max McGee. So it's towards the end of his career. He was a backup at that stage. Just didn't really think he was he was going to have anything to do during the game. Uh, he went out and broke team curfew and 
absolutely got hammered. He got home at 6.30 in the morning, um, actually walked past his quarterback in, in the hallway on, on his way to breakfast. And so he'd had no sleep. He was, yeah, he was hungover as anything. And the first thing he does is he goes up to, up to the, 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 you know, the, the regular receiver. Apologies, I didn't grab his name. But the first thing he said, the, yeah, the, I don't actually have his name, but he, he, first thing he says to him is, don't go getting injured out there. I'm not in good shape. And of course, on you know Tempting the second play. or third play of the yeah second third play of the game, you know this guy gets absolutely destroyed, has to walk off the field. I think he did his shoulder. In goes Max McGee, and uh, he actually ended up scoring the first ever touchdown in Super Bowl history with a an incredible hangover. <laughs> so how so how? So what's the message? Story? What's the moral of the story, kids? Yeah, no, we won't go there. Drop out of school and do drugs, apparently. No, <laughs> obvious, obviously not. These, these are incredible, incredible stories that, that are real outliers. But uh, Well, that's the thing, obviously. For all the cases of, you know, ridiculous happenstance, there's, you know, millions of cases where people have abused substances and probably ruined their career as a result or at very worst, uh, or very least, had a bad game. Well, that wraps us up, Shui. Another big week. Plenty, plenty of interest and intrigue for the rest of the year, as always. What are you amped for? Look, I'm amped for a couple of things. I really want to see the follow-on from the West Coast-Gold Coast game. I really can't wait to see if Gold Coast are actually the real deal this, this season after, you know, after one game. Are we overreacting to, to that? Um, and I'm also obviously really keen as a West Coast supporter to see if we can actually come out and play some decent footy against Brisbane. So that's probably the, the stuff I'm at for this weekend. How about yourself? Well, I'm obviously AFL is, is front of mind and, and we don't um, have much else to watch uh, in the next week. I'm very amped to, to see how the uh, AFL continues to be received in America. Pat McAfee's still tweeting away and talking about it on his podcast and stuff, which is great. ESPN in the States has rekindled a romance with the AFL that I didn't realise until recently extends all the way back to 1979. Would you believe that the network aired Australian Rules Football from 1979 through 1985 with the league uh, reportedly gaining a cult-like following in the United States because they had so little... Uh, domestic content being tied up on free-to-air at the time that they had to just find whatever sport they could. And as I mentioned last week, they've currently been showing South Korean baseball uh, in the lead-up to their episodes of Get Up in the Morning. Bulldogs and GWS. I'm apt to see that for, I guess, uh, to see how they respond to very disappointing weeks last week. Um, Will the Bulldogs play those blokes that they didn't play? McLean... Uh, Libba, those sort of guys, will they get a gig? And will GWS, is it, a, is it another grand final loss hangover, a team that's suffering from that? Is that why they played so poorly last week? Again, a lot of people tipped them to go very well this season. And, you know, without crowds and that kind of pressure, maybe this was a good year for them. But, but that's a game I'm quite interested in seeing. Oh, are, they, are they the next Adelaide Crows, effectively? It's possible. It's not unusual. It's not unusual occurrence. Well, look, either way, whatever everyone else is amped for, it's, you know, it's set to be another, another interesting week in football. And I think, uh, I think all of us are, are just dying to, to get to Thursday night. On that note, we'll leave you. I'm Nathan. And I'm Stuart. We are the Sport Blokes. <laughs>